A story I heard recently reminded me of how often and easy it is to see things from a different perspective. Um, there was a, the story is told of a nursery school teacher who was driving a van full of children home at the end of the day. And as they're driving home, a fire engine is approaching them. And so obviously they pull to the side of the road and all the kids are excited not only about the fire engine, but as the fire engine gets closer, they're more excited about the fact that they see a Dalmatian dog sitting on the front seat. And so obviously the, the conversation takes place where they're trying to figure out what the purpose of the dog. And so one of the kids says, oh, they take the dog with them to keep the crowd back away from the fire. Another little girl says, that's not right. They don't do that. They take it for good luck. The dog's good luck. And the third perspective just just ended the whole conversation when the little girl said, you're both wrong. I know exactly why they take the dog. And when you're that authoritative, everyone's got to stop and listen. They said, well, well, what's the dog there for? So, well, the dog is to help the firemen find the fire hydrants. (laughs) There you go. So, um, you know, there's a, the point is, while we may have our own perspective and opinions, that doesn't guarantee that our perspective is correct. I want you to listen to me very carefully, and it's a phrase that I will use often this morning. Listen carefully. Um, there are times in life when we are wrong. And, the, and, the, <laughs> and I was going to say, the people that understand that most are those of us who are married... But we would also have to listen to our spouse. So the bottom line, though, is that we're wrong. There are times in my life, as I look back, where it has been proven very definitively that I was wrong. And that's important to realize because one of the reasons, of many reasons, that we study the Bible is because we are prone to be wrong. Incorrect in how we think and maybe incorrect in how we act. And the Bible is very clear in 2 Timothy 3.16. The reason that we study the Bible is because all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. It's the Word of God for man. That all Scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable. It has a positive, beneficial experience for our lives as we study the Word of God. It's profitable for teaching, which is instruction. For reproof, which is to tell us when we're wrong, basically. For correction, to tell us how to get right when we are wrong. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be adequately equipped for every good work. And what we're talking about even in marriage. Hey, there are times we're wrong. There are times we need to be rebuked. There are times we need to be corrected. And there are times we need to take corrective action. It's that way in every area of life, specifically in our, area with, in our uh, relationship with God. Now, t- now Paul goes on to uh, charge Timothy with these words. Command him, basically. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, that you should preach the Word. Not your opinion, not your philosophy, not what you read in the latest book or survey, but your responsibility as a messenger of God is to preach the Word of God. And to do so in season and out of season... Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not, speaking of the people, they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to lies. The reason that we're here is to study the Word of God, which is the Word of God. We're not here to talk about my opinions, my philosophies, my viewpoints, or anything like that unless they tie directly into what we learn from God Himself. 
If you've got your Bibles with you, and if you don't, I'd like to challenge you to go out and get one. If you can't afford one, come up and talk to me, and we will get you one. But if you plan to come here on a regular basis, I would encourage you to bring the Bible. Because guess what we're going to do? We're going to study it. And it's really important that you have it. You know, it cracks me up when I see people that come to Bible study, and I think it's our culture for the most part. We're used to not having to bring it because no one ever turns to it and looks at it. But I think that I want to challenge you to consider we come here for the purpose of studying the Bible. So if you're going to come, bring it. If you don't have one, get one. If you can't get one because you can't afford it, let us know. We'll get you one. I mean, you know, it's like, can you imagine for a moment if you're going to go golfing one day? And you go, where's your clubs? Well, I didn't think I'd need them today. I, I don't get it. If you're going to sing music, it's like, where's your instrument? Uh, well, oh, do we need them? Well, <laughs> it depends on why you came. So, you know, if you've got your Bibles, great. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. As we look at a, a passage that we began to study last time we were together, and that has to do with the power of prayer that's demonstrated in the life of Daniel. For those who have been with us, we've been going through the book of Daniel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're gaining great insight as God instructs us into many areas of our life. Particularly in this chapter, we're going to see the power of prayer, and basically we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We read, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. As we go through this passage for outline purposes and maybe to help it be easier for you to retain it, we're going to look at three points. First one is going to be the circumstances of Daniel's prayer, which we see in the first couple of verses. The second thing we'll look at is the contents, or the, uh, basically the conditions of his prayer, which we find in verses 3 through 19. And then ultimately we'll get to the confession of Daniel's sin, which is in verse 20 through 23. For those of you who like to follow on an outline so you know when a message is coming to a conclusion, I'll guarantee you you're not going to figure out from what I'm going to do this morning. But anyway, but that's an outline to help you out. And there's going to be a few points in between each one of those. So let's take a look at the first thing that we began to look at, and that is the circumstances of Daniel's prayer that's found in verses 1 and 2. It's important our proceeding through the chapter is an understanding of what Daniel was thinking at this time. If you'll recall in our last session together last week, we learned that this was in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. The Bible instructs us into every detail that God feels is necessary for us to gain a, a clear understanding of what he's trying to tell us and what he's trying to accomplish. And it's important as we look at this to see what is Daniel thinking about all the things that are going on. You know, Daniel's led an incredible life. If you realize that he was taken into captivity when he was a teenager, he's now about 85 to 90 years of age as he writes this particular portion of Scripture. So he's seen quite a, a, he's seen quite a landscape of change that has taken place in his life. In Daniel chapter 2, God had given him a vision to interpret. The vision was that of Nebuchadnezzar, if you recall from our study, that had to do with the empires of world history that would come up after this particular point in time. And Daniel has lived to see a transition, a major transition, from this head of gold who was Nebuchadnezzar to the Medes and the Persians who ultimately conquered Babylon and now take control. He sees this. This is the first year of that transition year. And he begins to ask some questions and wonder what is going on. Now, if you also recall in Daniel chapter 8, he had a vision. And the vision was, as we know from history, as we look back, he didn't know at that particular time who it would be. But the fruition of the vision was in a man whose name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who desolated Jerusalem and persecuted the Jews exactly as God said that he would. 
So as he's looking out ahead to the future, he's concerned for his people. He's concerned about the future of Israel. He's concerned about what God's plan is for, for, for him particularly and for man in general. And he begins to ask some questions as he looks at this changing landscape. And uh, as you can you know, easily imagine, it's something that's troubling to him. And we find out, what do you do when you've got questions in your life? Well, Daniel knew exactly what to do because he had done it his whole life. And that was what? When we're confused and there are questions in our mind and there's a, there, there's a sense of fear or terror as to what the future holds, the first thing that Daniel did and the first thing I'd encourage us to do is turn to the Word of God for clarity and for understanding. Notice what he did. It says, in the first year of his reign, in verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books. And what he's talking about is the Old Testament as he had it at that time. He did a thorough, diligent examination and study of the Word of God so that God could give him clarity as to the confusion that he had as to what the plans of God were for his life and for the nation of Israel. And it was through the study of God's Word that we saw last time in Exodus 23, Leviticus 25, Leviticus 26. We know that Daniel was familiar with the Levitical laws, and we know that from our study. And that's why we retain what we learn, because it built upon it. And that is in the first chapter, we learned that Daniel said, hey, I'm not going to eat the king's diet. Well, how did he know what the king's diet was, and how did he know that the king's diet was wrong before God? The only way he knew that the food that was being offered to him was wrong before God is because God had already told him what he could and couldn't eat. So he knew that, he understood that, and that's why he said he wouldn't defile himself or sin before God. Sin is falling short of the standard that God has set. God's standard was you won't eat of this food. It was offered to him. He said, I can't do it. If I do it, I'm going to sin. So he wouldn't do it. He learned that from Leviticus. Now we also know as he goes back, he studies Leviticus to find out what's going on in his life as far as this change that's taken place. In Leviticus 26, we learn that, Deuteronomy 28, and if you got your Bibles, turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is where we left off. He understood that God was judging the nation of Israel for their willful disobedience to the Word of God. The term desolations of Jerusalem has specifically to do with this. In verse 15, we read in 2 Chronicles 36... It says, and the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them. There it is again, the word of God. Sent word to them again and again. How persistent is God? And he sent it by his messengers because he had great compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God is motivated by compassion to reach people with the truth. It is amazing to me how foolish people are in our culture today who would say in any stretch of the imagination that God somehow is not a loving God. That if God really loved me, why would He let this happen in my life? If God really loved us, why would He let our family go through such a tragedy? If God was really a God of love, how could He let such things happen? We learn that God is love. The only reason you and I have the capacity of love is because He first loved us. God is love, and He's motivated by love to reach people. Notice what He says, and it's by His compassion on His people that He sent messengers to tell them the truth so that they would know the difference between right behavior and wrong behavior. But notice why they received it. They continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. He understood that God was judging them because there was no remedy. Look in verse 17. Therefore. Why was it therefore? Because it helps us to understand the transition. God warned them as to what was right and wrong. They chose wrong. Therefore, because they chose wrong, says God, what? 
brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young men or virgins, old men or infirm, and he gave them all into his hands. Therefore, they were judged. They rejected the word of God as graciously presented through God's spokesman. Now, motivated by great compassion, God tried to get his word across to them. Listen to me very carefully. If you don't learn anything else from our time together, learn this truth. There are blessings that come when we obey the word of God. And there are consequences or curses that result when we disobey and rebel against God's truth. Duh. All right? We need to understand that because we live in a culture that somehow or another has diminished a certain sense of clear understanding of right and wrong. We send out a confusing message. Is something really wrong or really right? Well, it depends on how you think. It depends on what it's accomplished by it. It depends on, depends on, depends Hey, you know what? It doesn't depend on anything. Things are right because God says they're right. Things are wrong because God says they're wrong. And that's as clear as I can make it. And when we choose to do right before God, God says, I will bless you. If you choose to do wrong, therefore, God rose up a king in Nebuchadnezzar to bring about a curse that he had already promised them would happen if they disobeyed. They disobeyed. God is true to his word. He cannot lie. He's not like man who can change his mind, nor can he lie, because in him is no darkness at all. So if God says it, you better believe it, because he doesn't change his mind. But somehow or another, we all believe, well, God doesn't really mean what he says when he says it because we're so used to a culture that when somebody says something, you don't really know if they mean it or don't mean it. Listen to me. When God says something, it's very clear and he means it. Nothing else should motivate us. If nothing else should motivate us to study the word of God, it should be that and that alone. And that is this. I need to understand what's right before God because when I choose right, I'll be blessed by God. I need to understand what's wrong before God because if I choose to do wrong, I should also understand there's consequences. I need to know the rules. How about you? Every child needs to know the rules. Every athlete needs to know the rules. Every employee needs to know the rules. Every person in society, as far as government and law is concerned, needs to know the rules. Why? Because ignorance of the law is never an excuse. Oh, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know that was the law. I guess you've got to let me go. What would that encourage? Stupidity. The dumber we are, the less we're held accountable. Duh, God, uh, I don't want to know any of your rules because, duh, then you can't hold them against me. But God commands us to know the rules because you're going to be held accountable anyway. I can remember times when I was coaching or managing and I didn't study the rule book because I couldn't stand reading all that. I couldn't believe somebody sat down long enough to come up with all that stuff. And so I thought playing all my life, I had a good sense of what the rules are. And there's nothing more embarrassing than when you're, you're challenged something and, and somebody opens the book and says, well, that's section so-and-so, paragraph this, subsection 2, article 6, subpoint 9. And they open it up and they point to it and they say, guess what? You're wrong, we're right. Okay, play ball. I hate that. But see, but that's the word of God, isn't it? God says, I don't care what you think. Here it is. It's, I, I, got it, I got it to you. I made the effort to get it there. I love you. I'm compassionate. I laid out the rules. Now I'm going to hold you accountable for them. So it's really important that you know them. Now, how do you know them? You better study them. That's the only way you know them. Now, what's interesting to me is that Jesus warned of rejecting God's word and his truth, which Jesus said, by the way, in John 17, he says that the word of God sanctify them, Father, in your truth. For thy word is truth. Your word, Father, is truth. And it's the truth that sets people free from the consequences of disobedience, isn't it? 
Now, what's interesting is, is that Jesus, in Luke 16, he stated, talking about rejecting the Word of God, listen to me very carefully. He said at one point, he says that, you know what, even if someone would come back from the dead, they wouldn't be able to persuade the living of the truth of judgment and hell and the consequences of rejecting the Word of God. He was talking to a man who was in Hades. He was in a place of torment and agony. It says that he was in a place of fire and agony. He was judged by God for rejecting the truth of God, talking about Jesus Christ as as Messiah. He rejected God's truth, and as a result, he was judged, and he was waiting for the final judgment, but there he was in Hades. And the man threw this out to the Lord. He said, Lord, let me go back to, to 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 the living, and let me warn them of the truth of judgment and hell and sin and the consequences. And I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus said to him. He says, But Jesus said to him, If they, the living, do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which is the entire word of God at that particular time, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that phenomenal? What's he saying? He's saying human reasoning... Human persuasion, human eloquence cannot change the human heart. Only God can change the human heart. Religion tries to change the outer conditions of humanity. Religion says if you can change and do things this way instead of that way, that somehow you will be pleasing to God. And God says that there are none righteous. No, there's none at all. And there's no work of righteousness that God will consider to be pleasing in His sight. That all of our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. All of our efforts to reach God doesn't doesn't mean anything to God. In fact, if anything, you know what it is? It's an insult to what God has already done for us. In the book of Titus, turn ahead with me. It's after the book of 2 Timothy. But I want you to notice in the book of Titus how important it is that we grasp this truth so we can move forward from here. In the book of Titus in chapter 3, listen to the words that are found starting with verse 3. Titus 3.3, we read this. For we ourselves once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I want you to notice he says that they were disobedient. Now, the only way you can be disobedient is if you understand that there was a standard that you didn't live up to. So, there's an implied statement here that God set a standard. We didn't live up to it. We disobeyed the standard of God. And that is what God calls sin. And he goes on, he says, but this is true. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, made itself manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, if you recall, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The word that's used here has to do with the appearing of God, which is Jesus Christ. In the appearance of God, he says that when God Himself appeared, He saved us. Who saved us? Jesus Christ saved us with His death on the cross. He saved us, and not on the basis of deeds that we deserved it, which we have done in righteousness, trying to live a good life. He says, but according to His mercy. He saved us because He chose to save us. Not because there was anything in and of ourselves that was worth saving. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's none of us that are righteous. God chose to save us because He chose to save us. 
He goes on and says, But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that being justified by His grace, by His grace, not by our works, but by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you follow that? We are saved if we believe what God says is true about Jesus Christ, that He died for our sins, and in Him and Him alone are we made righteous before God. You coming to church does not make you any more righteous before God. Hopefully it will instruct you on how to live a life subsequent to the fact that you've believed in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here for the first time and you're hearing that, you know what, you can't work your way to heaven, that you just got to give it up and realize that God did it all and you better put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or you have no hope to be made right with God. And that's the reason that you come to hear the truth of the Word of God. And subsequent to that, then you hear instruction as to how to live a life so you're adequately equipped to do the works of righteousness or to do what God calls us to do in the limited time that He leaves us here on earth. So we recognize and understand that this is what this is all about. Now when you go back to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36, you realize that when you and I lose Bible doctrine, we lose everything. When you and I lose Bible doctrine, we lose everything. It's just a matter of time before everything that we have is taking aw- taken away from us. And the reason for it is very simple. In 2 Chronicles 36, it says that when we disobey, there's no remedy. There's always consequences to sin. There's always a price to be paid. So there is no remedy. When you lose Bible doctrine as the, as the navigational system to guide your thoughts and your actions, there is no remedy for wrong choices. God, because He's just, will enact the consequences that He warns us about. And think about it. How unjust is it if someone says, these are the rules, and we've all been there. These are the rules. If you break the rules, here are the consequences. Then all of a sudden, somebody breaks the rules, and they go, but in your case, we're going to make an exception. What do you think that says about the rules? They're worthless. They're useless. That's a double standard. If I break the rules, I'm going to be held accountable. If you break the same rules, we're going to let you slide. You know what that tells me? What kind of rules are those? Oh, it is, produces an anarchy in society. It produces anarchy in a home, produces anarchy in a business, on a team, anywhere that you look at it. You all have to be, you know, we all have to be held accountable to the same rules. So in Second Chronicles 36, we realize that, you know what, if we begin to doubt the Word of God and not obey God's Word, there is no remedy. God will judge us accordingly. As I was studying this, it was fascinating. I got a financial newsletter that came to my attention. And I like the headline of it. And we don't have time to do it because I got a whole bunch of other things that I want to get accomplished here. But the, the headline was this. Experts may be wrong, but God never is. And I thought that was fascinating because the quick take was, just 18 months ago, a growing number of business leaders, economic experts, and government officials were touting the idea that we had entered a new economic golden age. Ahead were years of unbroken prosperity, they said, driven by tremendous developments in computer technology, telecommunications, and bioengineering. Guess what? They were wrong. First, unexpected economic turmoil struck Thailand, quickly spreading to Indonesia, South Korea, and other parts of Asia. Much of that area of the world now is facing what can only be described as an economic depression. He goes on and says, Meanwhile, Japan, which was the world's second largest economy, is mired in its worst recession since World War II, and Russia is in an economic tailspin. International bankers worry that the financial contagion soon will spread to Latin America. The quickness of the turnaround from golden age to troubled times is almost enough to make your head spin. Why did it happen? Very simply, he puts out, because the experts are wrong. I believe it's because they failed to take into account that any prosperity not built on the foundation of solid biblical principles is doomed to fall under its own weight. 
In simple terms, former Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker said this, it's a classic case of greed overcoming prudence. That's a nice way of saying those who want to get rich, those who long to get rich, will fall into many snares and temptations. And some will even walk away from their faith in an effort to get rich. The Bible says that riches will take up wings and fly away like an eagle if we place all of our faith and confidence on those things that are material. It's fascinating to me because if you don't have a solid foundation of biblical doctrine as the guiding point for every decision in your life, even peace, contentment, and joy will also become evasive. And if your focus is not on Christ and His Word, you will not have any peace, contentment, or joy. Solomon had everything the world had to offer, and he said this, without a working, day-to-day, loving relationship with the God who creates us, everything in this world and this life is vanity, and everything is soap bubbles that's an illusion that looks good until you have it and you realize there's no substance to it at all. He said, who can eat and enjoy and have contentment in life without him? Great question. Great point. Very valid and also true. You know, the single, you know, if you stop and think about it, you say, well, God's not a loving God. Let me tell you something. I believe that if God strips you of everything in order to get your attention, he couldn't be any more loving than to do that. Think about this. What is the single most important thing or decision that any human being could ever make while they're here on the face of the earth? The single most important decision that any human being has to make is whether they want to enter into a relationship with the God who created them. And if that means he takes away your health, and he takes away your money, and he takes away your material things, and he takes away your job, and he strips you of everything that you hold valuable in this life so that the only thing you have left is to turn to him, that's the most loving and gracious thing that God could ever do to get a hold of your heart. And when you have nothing left and nowhere else to turn, it's amazing how many of us drop on our knees and say, God... If you're there, and he says, I am here, and I'm getting your attention, and I'm going to bring someone to your life to share with you the truth that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God clearly teaches that there's no way that man can be right with God other than to believe in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as our sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible says in John 1:12, For as any has received Him, to them He gave the privilege to be called children of God. To those who believe in the most important thing that any human being will ever come to grips with on this earth. And we need to recognize it's not by human persuasion. I can't talk you into accepting Christ. I can't encourage you any other way than by sharing the truth of God's word. This is what God has to say. And God's way is very narrow. There is no other way to heaven but, by, but through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than by Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The way, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me, is what Jesus said. And the world hates that message because the world wants everyone to have their own spin, their own opinion, their own perspective, and it's equally valid. And you know what the Word of God says about what you believe if you believe that? You are wrong. Ooh, and we get our neck, our neck stand up and the hair gets all down on the back of our neck. And we don't like anybody telling us wrong because who are they to tell us we're wrong? But what's fascinating about it, and I challenge people, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been wrong in your life before? Well, yeah, so yeah. Okay, well then what makes you think you're not r- right wrong about this? Uh, duh. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Look, it says, verse 19, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, destroyed all its valuable articles, and those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, which included Daniel, and they were servants to him, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar and to his sons, Belshazzar, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Why did all this happen? Listen to me. It happened to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. 
All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Daniel, as he was studying the word of God, realized that God said this, if you violate my word, you will have consequences for it. God said that every seventh year you will let the land lie fallow, that you would not produce any produce, you would not work. It was a Sabbath year law that God said, and they deliberately chose to disobey. For 70 consecutive Sabbath years, they disobeyed the word of God for a period of 490 years. And people say God is not gracious. Let me tell you something. For, 400 and, uh, for 483 years... They had an opportunity to judge themselves, to confess their sin, acknowledge what they did was wrong, and turn from it, and God would have forgave them for it, and he would not have held them accountable, because God gives us an opportunity many times in our lives to judge ourselves before he steps in to judge us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And say God's not loving and he's not compassionate? I thank God for many times in my life where I judge myself before a whole bunch of other people got involved to judge me. You know what I'm saying? And that's exactly what God's saying here. We need to recognize and understand God is compassionate and gracious and he allows us through the word of God to be instructed to be rebuked. Hey, what you're doing is wrong. Now clean up your act and start doing it right. God, thank you for warning me before I got too far down that path. We have a choice. They chose to disobey. They chose not to obey the word of God. And in Jeremiah 25, the passages that he was studying that we learned in Jeremiah, in Daniel chapter 1, we read this, Jeremiah 25, verse 8. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my word, here we go again, you have not obeyed, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against the land and against its inhabitants and against all those nations round about. I will utterly destroy them, the fifth cycle of discipline, and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation, the desolations of Jerusalem, the problem that he was checking into. Moreover, I will take them from, from, the, from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for what? For 70 years. God's word was very clear. So as Daniel was digging into it, he realized, hey, you know what? Those 70 years are almost up. Wonder what we're supposed to do about it. Well, in Jeremiah 29, God gives instructions. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord... When, look, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and for not of calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. What's the hope? Our hope is always in the Lord. Our hope isn't in human beings and human wisdom and knowledge. Our hope is in the Lord and in Him alone. Our hope is in His word. And we can count on the blessed hope of every believer is what? The return of Jesus Christ. He's our hope. He goes, then, listen, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Back to Daniel chapter 9. Back to Daniel chapter 9. I want you to notice the approach of Daniel. We see his awareness as far as the word of God is concerned. But now look at the approach of Daniel. In Daniel 9, look at verse 2. We see that it's in the, seventh, we see that it's in the first year of the reign. I, Daniel, observed in the books. It was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophets for the completion of the desolations, namely 70 years. God's word is very clear. For 70 years they'd be in captivity. But what would happen after the 70 years? Then what? Then my people would what? They'd pray. Notice, says, so, Daniel, so, why? 
Because I saw that God's word said, after the 70 years were over, that God's people would then turn to God and pray. So guess what I did? So I turned to God and I prayed. I gave my attention to seek the Lord by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I love that. So I gave my attention as the New American Standard. The NIV says, so I turned to the Lord and pleaded. The King James says, so I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer. In each translation, we gain a sense of urgency, don't we? As to the determination in the life of Daniel to do what God called him to do. Daniel was determined to pray. Remember, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating of the the king's diet. Daniel was determined to pray even in the face of death in the den of lions... When they said, here, you know what, you got to do it this way, you got to stop praying. And he says, no, I'm determined to pray, and I don't care if you kill me, because the Word of God instructs me to pray. Listen to me. Why should we pray? Because God tells us to. Is that great or what? I mean, we write all these books. Why should we pray? You know, we got these big dissertations. We're, no, we're getting PhDs, figuring out, hey, how, hey, let me tell you something. Here's why we pray. Because God says to do it. You know what I love about Daniel? I love about Daniel. Is that this guy was so determined to just do what God told him to do. He had a determination. You know what it says? He goes, I set my face to God to pray. I dug in. I hunkered down. And nothing was going to change my mind. As the deer pants for the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 42, 1. I read that and I love that. As the deer pants for the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. I gotta have, I gotta have more of you, God. You are my substance. You are my sufficiency. You are everything that I need. I love you. And God talks a lot about having a love affair with God. To love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love Him as a deer pants for the water's brook. So we should pant for God. And to to be close to Him. To have fellowship with Him. To have an intimate relationship with Him. You know, I think about that. And a few years ago, we were in Atlanta. And it was in summertime. And it was in August. And I went out for a run, which I don't recommend to anybody. But I went out for a run. And I got away from the house that we were staying. And I got, you know, they lived out in the country. And there was like, man, there was nowhere to find any water. But fortunately for me, it was so hot and so humid that within two or three miles of the run that I was on, my shoes filled up with water. (laughs) Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm stopping. I'm thinking, there's an untapped resource right there. And I'm, ooh. See, you don't know what it's like to thirst like that. I mean, we've been out on long runs. I know some guys that are here that have been out and they run marathons and stuff. Man, I'll tell you what, you get 8 miles, 10 miles, 12, 13 miles away from home, and there's nowhere to go. I mean, you're looking at curb, curb water running down the street. I mean, you're looking for people to turn their sprinklers on. You're lapping out of the faucet of people's homes, and, and you hope that they understand when they look at you that, you know, okay, it's okay. You look like you're going to die. You know, I mean, you're looking for a drink. And so I know what it means to thirst to the point where you're willing to do anything to get some kind of a a, a liquid refreshment. I mean, you're longing for the next aid station. But see, what what, what I'm starting to realize, and, and I want you to understand, is this. How many of us have that same type of determination when it comes to our relationship with God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like a newborn babe long for the pure milk of the word that so in it you'll grow and respect the salvation. Hunger and thirst 
Long for the pure milk of the word? Set your face upon God and determine that nothing will sway you from your relationship with God? Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night and said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. The persistence and the determination of a man who is in love with his God, that nothing will get in the way. The point of all that is, I'm going to ask you this, to what or whom do you demonstrate such passion? Oh, I see people demonstrated in their, their, their work or their profession, their career. I see people who are dem- demonstrated with their obsession toward academics, a- academics. I see it in all my work with sports. People that are just, I mean, sports is their God. Their business is their God. Making money is their God. Their passion is really for their God. The problem is, the question is, who is your God? Why is it that we can be so passionate and determined and and so in love with the other things that we do in this world and the world world stands back and they say, man, we love to see people like that. We love to see your passion for your job. We love to see your passion for studies. We love to see your passion on the athletic field. We love to see passion and determination. But you show that same kind of passion and determination for God and the things of God. They stand back and say, Jesus freak? Lunatic? Far right. Is that true? Daniel was a man who had a passion for the Lord and for the Word of God. And he set his face and he determined to do it. How does a child demonstrate that he loves his parents? By obeying their rules. How do men and women show their love for God? Jesus said it best. If you really love me, you'll just obey my commandments. You'll just do what I tell you to do. Then you'll know, and I'll know, that you love me. Let me ask you a question. What's hindering your walk and growth with the Lord? What hinders and stops you or or causes you to have a lack of determination in your pursuit of knowing God? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, said this, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing else in this world that comes close to what it's like to know God and to know Him personally. I, I count it all lost. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it has to do with knowing God personally. Not trying to live a good life. Jesus said it best when people, their face in judgment said, But Lord, we cast out demons in your name, and we did this, and we did that, and we did all the stuff in your name. And he says, I don't even know you. And you never came to know me. Don't confuse works with knowing God. Now, works may follow, because faith without works isn't faith at all. But never confuse that for knowing God. Do you know God? The only way you know Him is when you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And to them, God has given you, to you, the right, and me, the right, to be called children of God, to those who believe in His name. Then we know we know God. Daniel was focused. He set his face. He was determined. Why was he so determined? Look, you don't have to look at it because we're running out of time. But listen to these words again. In Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, I'm going to tell you exactly why Daniel was determined. Here's why he was determined. It says, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when... When you search for me with all of your heart. Solomon fell into sin and the Bible says he was not, his heart was not wholly devoted to God any longer. 
The great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me ask you again. Is that the same kind of love that you have for God? The same kind of love you have for your career? The same kind of love you have for making money? The same kind of love you have for your hobbies? The same kind of love maybe you even have for your spouse or your children? Is that the same kind of love that you have for God? If it is not, then you and I are wrong before God and we need to confess our sin. Do you understand that? See, this is, this is, as the kids say, this is 724, 24-7. This is 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I am wholly, compassionately consumed with my love for God. This isn't, we're coming to church and we turn it on. We go to work and we turn it off. Oh, we go to Bible study in the middle of the week, maybe, and we turn it on. And then we go right back out to the athletic field and we turn it off. I consider all of that trash and garbage, Paul says, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How about you? Is he number one in your life? Anything less is sin before God. There's no other way around it. You may not like to hear it, and I don't really care because I'm just a messenger of God, and I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. And you don't even have to believe me. Read it yourself. That's even better. Because when you read it and you see it, then you realize it's just not me. You know, what's amazing to me is that, you know, people have always... Why? Why do people hate the message? Because they want to accumulate for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. We'll talk more about that next time, and, and don't miss that. But the bottom line is this. They despised, they mocked, and they persecuted the messengers of God, not because of the messenger, but because of the message that they came and they shared. And it kills me sometimes, because some of you got an attitude like, you know, I've, I've been called every name in the book by people walking out of here. You know, that guy, I'm going to blank, I'm going blank. It's like, well, what, what, what's, what's, what's the problem with me? I'm not saying that, that you, 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 know, you can't choose not to like me, because, you know, there are things about me I don't like. So, you know, jump in or, or, or line up, you know. But, but the point of the matter is this. It's like, well, what, what, you know, what was offensive? Well, you know, one guy left one day and said, well, I was offended by the fact that you said that if I die today and I never receive Jesus Christ, that I'm going to go to hell and be judged by God for rejecting that message. So, okay, and the problem is with me? I did you the biggest favor that anybody could ever do, and that's just tell you the truth. Deal with it. I don't care whether you like me or not, because I'm not going to be the one that judges you, and I don't have any authority to send you to hell for eternity. But you know what? God does. Jesus Christ said, you know, it's better that you cut off your arm, your leg, or you pull out your eye, you know, and, and do any of those things if they cause you to stumble before God, because you know what? God can, can destroy both body and soul in hell for eternity. So we see that Daniel was aware of the word of God. We also see his approach to God was one of determination. Nothing was going to stop him. If the word of God said to pray, guess what he decided to do? He decided to pray. And you know what's interesting about that? I want you to stop and think about something. How old was Daniel? Daniel was 70 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. Daniel was 90 years old and had been in captivity for almost 70 years. But here's the beautiful thing about this. Don't miss this. The simplicity of Daniel's faith was this. Here's a guy 90 years old. He had been in administrative capacity in two major world empires at this point. I mean, the guy was a top dog. I mean, chief executive. In two major world empires. Not for some puny little companies like you and I have. But the world empire, right? And here's what's amazing about this guy. He would go to the word of God. And God's word said something. And he would just go ahead and do it. 
You notice that? He was reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said, okay, you know what, you're going to be in captivity 70 years. After that point in time, then God's people are going to pray, and they're going to turn to me and pray, and they're going to do it with all their heart. And so Daniel said, well, okay, that's simple. I'm just going to do it. People crack me up. God's word is very easy to understand. The problem is, is that we just don't like to believe what it says and then have to apply it because we're stiff-necked people who rebel against the word of God. And that's the primary number one sin of man is what? Rebellion or pride. You can't tell me what to do. Daniel was a man who was open and teachable. A man, if God's word said to do it that way, he did it exactly as God said. I am so disgusted and sick of, quote, all the educated people in the world who try to figure out some way why we don't have to obey the word of God. Listen to me. You need to come to a point in your life where you understand the word of God is reliable and trustworthy. Once you've come to that conclusion, then you just need to simply, as you study it diligently and read what God has to say, you just need with the simplicity of the faith of a child, just do what God tells you to do. Whether you like it or not, just do it. It is amazing to me how every now and then you hit it right when you're supposed to say it. <laughs> They're a long time coming in between. But we just want to thank God when it finally happens. Daniel chapter 9. We've got four more minutes. Daniel chapter 9. Go back to that. We see the awareness of Daniel and the Word of God and the approach of Daniel to God, and that is he's determined to do what the Word of God tells him to do. The third and last item is this. Notice his attitude, and it's really important that we pick up on this. So, why? Because God's Word said to do it. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him with all of my heart, as God said to do it, determined not to let anything get in my way, to seek Him by what? Prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Notice his attitude in prayer is one of humility. He's determined and persistent to obey the Word of God. But you know what? He has an attitude of humility. And it's demonstrated in the, those words fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes were an expression of an outward sign of a change in one's heart. The Bible says that they were to mourn or repent of their sin. They were to put on an outward garment that would display what they've already decided on the inside. They would take ashes from the sacrifice and they would just douse themselves with ashes in an act of humility before God. And it always takes an act of humility to do this. What? To confess our sin. It always takes an attitude of humility, a broken heart God you will never despise. A person of contrite and broken heart can always go to God regardless of your sin and agree with God that what you did or are doing is wrong and the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you and I have come to a point where we believe in Jesus Christ for the atonement of our sin, don't misunderstand this. Fasting is not something we do so that God will find our prayers more uh, acceptable that they would get there faster or quicker, no pun intended. Fasting has nothing to do with other than taking the time that you normally would take to prepare a meal, to eat a meal, and to clean up after a meal, and to agree to take that time and to use it as a time to pray to God and follow His instruction in His Word. We live in a culture today that thinks somehow if you torture yourself 
and you punish yourself that somehow now God will be more pleased with whatever it is that you bring before him in prayer. And you know what? That is not even true at all and that is the wrongest attitude that you can have. It is wrong before God. Why? Because you and I can never atone for our sin or make our sin right before God by torturing ourselves. Jesus Christ was tortured on the cross and the Bible says it is finished. It was done. And with him, God is well accepted. God well accepts his sacrifice. So don't try to torture yourself to think that somehow God will answer your prayers quicker if you're hurting yourself in some stupid way. It's a matter of taking time and set aside time to do what God calls us to do. It's interesting, there's one other point in the Bible where it talks about taking time out from another activity for the purpose of prayer. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, read it sometime, but it has to do with denying a husband and wife, denying the intimacy that they have in their marital relationship, a time where they get together to have a sexual relationship. The Bible says that by mutual consent, if both of you agree, instead of taking the time to do that, why don't you both agree, if you agree, to take the time to spend in prayer? It's taking time out of another activity and refocusing that time in an area that God says he'd like to hear from us and he wants us to pray. Now, for some of us in that 1 Corinthians 7, that could be five minutes or two hours. But the point is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's taking, you know, it's taking that time out. And, uh, you know, if most men that I know will try to split the difference. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, we need to take the time to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do. All right. So let's, uh, let's wrap all this up. We can, we can learn a lot from this godly man, Daniel, when it comes to prayer. Number one is, we learned about his awareness of God's word, and it's the awareness of God's word that led him to pray. Can I just lay something out very clearly in case everything else I've said hasn't been real clear? But uh, we don't know how to pray until we read in the word of God how to pray. You follow that? We don't know how to pray. We don't know when to pray. We don't know what our attitude in prayer should be. And even the disciples said the same thing. Lord, you know what? We're really dumb. Teach us how to pray. I like that. We don't know anything about prayer until we learn it from the Word of God, right? So it's real important that we understand that the focal point of the Christian life is the Word of God. We don't know how to worship God unless we have instruction from the Word of God. We don't know what is pleasing to God. We don't know what is displeasing to God. And so it always kind of concerns me when churches move toward, we're moving more into a worship mode than an instruction mode. And my question for them simply is this, how do you know what direction to move unless you are instructed by the Word of God? We're moving more into this way or that way or the other way. And I only have the question for you is, how do you know where you're going unless it's God who's giving you direction? You got it? The Word of God is a lamp under our feet, light under our path. Without it, we don't know where to go. Daniel knew when to pray and how to pray because he was instructed from Jeremiah 29 that at the end of the 70 years of captivity, my people would turn and pray. And they would pray with all their hearts. He did, because God said it. It was very simple. Write this down. On the arm of the person next to you, I don't care where you write it, etch it into your head. And it's really important that we grasp this and we're going to... Almost be done. A diligent study of God's word followed by prayer is the formula for determining the will of God. A diligent study of God's word followed by prayer is the determining formula for discovering the will of God. 
There's no sense praying about something that God's already made clear you can't do. Duh. Right? I don't know how many times people waste their time. Well, God, if you hear me, hey, get a clue. He ain't listening. He already told you what's right and wrong. There's no sense praying about him changing his mind as to something he says is wrong. You know what? Don't do it. Don't even pray about it. You already know the will of God. It's been revealed. But for other areas of life, a diligent study of the word of God followed by prayer will always lead us to the will of God for our life. The second thing that we saw was his approach to God teaches us much about prayer, and that was he was determined, he was persistent, he was consistent in his passion for God and in his obedience to the word of God. He realized without God that he was nothing. He was relentless in his pursuit of God. And I hope, I hope, I hope, that you are very, very uncomfortable and convicted by the Spirit of God today if you are walking around in our culture lukewarm toward God and the things of God. It grieves me to see people who come to know Christ and are excited about their faith and can't wait to tell other people, can't wait to apply it, can't wait to dig in and study the Word of God only to have, quote, more mature Christians get in their way and try to slow them down. Let me tell you something about me. You try to get in my way, I'm going to run you over. Because I'm not letting you or anybody else get in between me and my pursuit for my love for God. And I hope the same thing is true of you. Friends, family, business, money, material things, I don't care what it is. Even well-meaning church people, don't get in somebody's way of their pursuit of the living God. Because he's bought us with a price. And the last thing, his attitude towards the matter was one of humility. And there's always humility in confessing our sins, isn't there? The Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. This explains a lot about why God answered Daniel's prayer. And when we get together next time, we're going to see that prayer and learn a lot more about what it means to have a right relationship with God. Father, thank you for your word. There's nothing else. There's nowhere else. There's no one else to turn to but you and your word. God, we just thank you that it's truth and the truth sets us free. We thank you for the instruction. We thank you for the rebuke when we need it and for the correction as to how to get right and for the training in righteousness so that you can use us here in the limited time that we have here on this earth. We thank you for the promises that you make for those of us who have believed in Christ. You tell us that for those who are in Christ, we're new creatures. Old things pass away. All things become new. We just thank you for the forgiveness that we find by your great mercy and not by any of our own works, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you so that none of us would ever be able to boast. We thank you for the promises that if we know Christ, that one day absent from this body we'll be present with the Lord. We thank you for the blessed hope of the second coming of Christ to this world that's so messed up and is in need of direction. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your... your, your, your servant Daniel, who we can learn much about his determined pursuit and passion towards God and the things of God. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.